turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, verses 7 through 11, as we continue to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, thus far as we just track back and think about all that the Lord has taught us in this sermon, beginning back in Matthew chapter 5 as he sat down to teach his disciples, those who are his followers, what it looked like to live in a way that magnifies the Lord and glorifies him, to live in a way that, that characterizes the follower of Christ. If we just think back and think about what that looks like and what he's taught us, what it, what it, what it is characterized by as, as far as how we live as one of his, then we're, we're reminded in, in chapter 5, beginning verse 3, we're reminded of the Beatitudes, that we are to be those who come to the Lord poor in spirit, realizing our, our spiritual bankruptness, that we need Christ. We are in utter need for him. We're reminded that we are the, those who mourn over sin. We are those who are meek, who are, who are gentle. And we are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But we're also reminded that in our interactions with others, we're to be those who glorify God and reflect his character by being those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who strive to make peace, those who endure persecution for the glory of God, knowing that our reward is great in heaven. We're to be those who, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, are the salt and light of the world, those who so influence the world around us that, that people understand that we are different and that we are His and it's not just for the sake of influencing the world, but it's for the sake of the greatness of his name, that his name would be magnified and glorified by the way we live, that our interactions, our actions, our words, our deeds, the things we do would not result in our own name being magnified, but the name of Christ being magnified through us. We get into Matthew 5, verses 17, all the way down to 48. And Jesus begins talking about how he did not come to nullify, to abolish, to remove the law, but he came to fulfill it. And as he explains that, he calls us to be those who are more concerned with heart purity than we are with religious legalism, that we're not just concerned with checking a box or following some rules or looking religious to those around us, but we are concerned with the state of our heart that our heart would be one that truly loves the Lord and magnifies the Lord. As a matter of fact, in verse 48 of chapter 5, he calls us to live perfect because our Heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be those who strive for perfection, that long for perfection. Why? Because he is perfect. Then we come into chapter 6. And in chapter 6, he calls us to live out our religious piety free of hypocrisy, that we are to be those who genuinely love the Lord and we live for God's greater glory, not for the glory of man. We're not here just to get the applause of man. We're not here because we want people to think how great we are, but we're here because we want to worship. We're here because we sincerely want to sing of God's faithfulness, of his holiness, of the fact that he is indeed an anchor of hope, and we rejoice in the fact that we can indeed come before him in prayer. 
He is the God of gods. He is the one true God. He is holy, holy, holy. We magnify him. We're not trying to be just religious nuts. We're here because we love God. We exalt God. We live for his glory, not the applause of man. Then we enter into chapter 7, the end of chapter 6 and into, into 7, and we're, we're called to live for the things of heaven. We're, we're, we're those who live with our gaze focused upward. We're those who live treasuring the things of heaven that we're not seeking to accumulate treasures on earth, but we are seeking to build treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not and cannot destroy. We understand that our, where our heart is, that is what we treasure, and so we give our heart wholly to God. We are those who don't live serving two masters. We're not trying to accumulate wealth and and stuff and material goods and then worshiping God on Sundays. But our heart is to be wholly devoted on Him. Wholly devoted on Him. Not partially, not the majority, but wholly devoted on Him. And as we do, we're those who live free of worry. We have no worries because our great God graciously provides for his own and so we live free of worry we live trusting him we love him above all things and so we trust him with all things then a couple weeks ago we came to chapter 7 and we were reminded of the importance of dealing with our own sin before the sins of others we are to be those who before we correct a brother We've looked in the mirror and examined our own hearts. That before we look with critical eyes and and magnify the sin and the wrong in someone else, we look in the mirror and we ask God to show us where we are wrong, where we are living in sin. It's a high calling, it's a serious endeavor. How, how are we to live and fulfill such a standard, a calling so great? How, how, are, how are we to do that? It's not, it's not something that is for the faint of heart. It's not something for the casual churchgoer on a Sunday morning. How are we to do this? How are we to live the way that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. See, the reality is every time we come to a various point of teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we're confronted with the reality that we cannot do it on our own. We just can't. The the flesh is weak. The flesh is too weak for us to do it on our own. But the good news today is this, is that where the sermon began saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who come and say, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Just as we come to Christ saying that, we walk in Christ 
saying that. Just as we come wholly dependent upon Him, we walk in the same poverty of spirit, wholly depending on Him. And today's passage is an invitation. It is good news. It is an invitation to come to Him, to depend upon Him, to seek Him in prayer. It's the reason that He speaks these words. Because He knows that we are incapable of doing what we are called to do on our own. And because of that, he says, listen, come to me in prayer. Come, come. Because the calling that I've put in your li- on your life to live in this way is not one that I put before you without giving you the resources to do it. I'm going to put this before you and then I'm going to empower you to do so by my grace and by my goodness. Let's read our passage this morning. Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. Our Lord says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This passage is a beautiful invitation for the child of God to come before His heavenly Father, her heavenly Father, and to seek Him in prayer. It's important to know what we said just a moment ago, that Jesus does not give us a standard for living without the means for receiving what we need to live out that standard. We can't miss the blessing in this. It's important this morning that we look at this passage as believers, those of you who are gathered that you're followers of Christ, that you would look at this passage and just sit back and go, wow, what a blessing. What a blessing. That our Lord looks to us and he says, listen, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like to follow and to pursue me, to be a follower of mine. And as you do that, I want you to come. I want you to ask. I want you to seek. I want you to knock. You see, it just continues this theme, this thread throughout the Sermon on the Mount of the appeal that not only is the disciple to live in a certain way and carry himself in a certain way and to be a certain person, but he is to be one who has an ongoing prayer relationship with the Father. He really focuses in on that in in chapter 6. In verse 6, he talks about that we are to be those who practice private prayer. We're not just ones who go and and speak prayers in public to make ourselves look good, but we're to be ones who gather before and come before the Lord in private prayer. In Matthew 6, 8, he reminds us that that God knows what we need before we even ask him. Before we come to him, he already knows what we need. The needs that you have that you don't know, you're unaware of right now, you're going to embark on the week and you're about to go forward and you have no idea what tomorrow holds. Well, God does. God knows what you're going to need. So when you come before God in prayer tomorrow morning, And all of a sudden you have these things weighing upon you that you were unaware of. You come before the one who already knows what you need. And we must be dialoguing with him. 
In verses 9 through 13 of chapter 6, he gives us a model prayer. He calls us to come before our heavenly father, the one who's adopted us as his own, the one who's given us the full rights as children, that we come before him, the God of all the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we have the privilege as his people to say our heavenly father, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. We strive for his kingdom. We long for his will to be done. We seek his provision of our needs. We seek forgiveness and to be those who forgive. And we long for him to enable us and strengthen us to live righteous lives. We are called and given a model prayer. We are to be those who bring our request to him. You see, part of the DNA of being a disciple of Jesus is an ongoing communion and dialogue with him. We are to be people of prayer. Prayer is in the DNA of the disciple. It's just who we are. It's how we come before him. It's how we commune with him. there's, There's two things. One, prayer is an expression of our relationship with God. Prayer is an expression of our relationship with God. We are indeed poor in spirit. And prayer is the fact that because we're poor in spirit, we live dependent upon him. As part of our relationship, we come in relation to him. It's an expression of our relationship. But second, prayer is also an exercise of faith. It's an exercise of faith. It's it's how we look to God and say, I can't, but I know you can, and I'm depending upon you. It's an exercise of our faith. That's why we read passages like Matthew 21, 22. We see this multiple times in Scripture, but just a couple, Matthew 21, 22, Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Prayer is an exercise of faith. James echoed this. James in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Here's the caution. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. See, prayer is an expression of our relationship with God. It's an exercise of our faith in God. That we come before him, we come praying in faith to our Father. That we have a vibrant communion relationship with now before we move on I think there's there's something we need to discuss about this passage because this passage is one that's been abused I want you to see the abuse of this beautiful promise see this this passage has been manipulated by those who would propagate the prosperity gospel it's one that's been taken out of context it's one that a lie has been pushed through the lie is this, that, that Matthew 7, verse 7 through 8, when it says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be open. You see, the lie is that this gives you the right to ask for anything you want and when you ask, especially if you tag on in Jesus' name on there, then you can expect that it will happen. That if I pray in Jesus' name with faith, and if my faith is strong enough, it'll be given to me. That's the lie that is just this kind of unhindered, hey, you want it, you got it. 
anything you want. You just ask, and it's going to be given to you. You just knock, knock a little louder, and it's going to be open to you. You just seek a little harder, and you'll get it. And see what the prosperity gospel preachers are going to say is, well, if you do that initially and it doesn't happen, it's because your faith needs to be stronger. You need to build your faith. You need to have more faith. You need to ask with greater faith. You need to seek with greater faith. You need to knock with greater faith. The problem is your faith isn't big enough. And so you just keep on, keep on. It's coming. It's coming. Whatever you want, it's coming. You just got to have enough faith. Here it is. Listen, the heart has to be examined here. When we come to this passage, the motives of the heart have to be examined. Is if we come to this passage and we approach this verse and we do so focused on me and what I can get, then we'll approach it focused on the stuff and the things that I want. That's not what this is teaching us. It's not saying, hey, listen, here's kind of a really cool verse and, and you need to just name this and claim it because if you've got this, then man, it's whatever you want. Katie, bar the door. I mean, yours, what you want is yours. It's coming to you. Yeah, it's focused on me. We examine the heart. And if we instead approach this invitation as we see is consistent in Scripture, when God invites us to pray, that that we would approach it as a desire to commune with God, to fellowship with God. If we desire it with an approach of praising Him, of interceding for others, of seeking genuine needs. And our approach is not on ourselves. Our requests look much different. Listen, we're going to talk about this, but this, you need to know, is not a verse that teaches us to leverage or manipulate God as though he's some type of cosmic genie or benevolent grandfather that's going to just give us everything we want. That's not what this verse is about. How do we know that? Well, Two ways, two novel ideas when we read Scripture. One is we read it in context of the immediate passage. And two, we read it in context of the Bible as a whole. If we would do that, it helps us avoid heretical teaching. When we look at the, just the immediate context, we, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. What's the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if we think about the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that the Sermon on the Mount is leading us away from material things. It's leading us away from approaching the material things of the world and, and seeking myself. And so it would be foolish to then come to this text and say, you know what, since all the Sermon on the Mount has been leading me away from focusing on material things, I'm now going to focus on, hey, ask and it's going to be given. Seek and I'll find it. Knock and I get it. All right. <laughs> this is great. No, it makes no sense to do that. Jesus is focused on the heart. He's focused on the character of believers. As a matter of fact, you just, if you back up just a little ways to Matthew 6, 19 to 34, he's really driving home this point that we're not to be striving after the things of the world. We're not to be seeking to accumulate the things of the world, the, the things of the earth, earthly treasures, worldly treasures, but we are to be those who are striving to build heavenly treasure. We're seeking the things of heaven. He even says, don't, don't worry. We're not to be anxious about our lives. We're not to be focused on what we can get, on what we want. We trust God to provide what we need. The Sermon on the Mount is leading us away from valuing the things of the world, away from serving the things of the world, to serving Christ. So surely to goodness, this passage doesn't all of a sudden say, hey, now I want you to focus on the things that you want. 
I want you to think about yourself and the things of earth and ask for those things. But we also, secondly, we also look at the context of the Bible as a whole. What, what does Scripture as a whole teach about prayer? Well, it, again, it prevents us from turning this passage into some kind of name it, claim it, personal prosperity promise. It, it prevents us from looking at it that way. We, we think about what is one of the most common phrases that Jesus talks about in prayer? Praying in, in his name. That's what we looked at in John 15, the scripture meditation. Abiding in him. Abiding in him. If we abide in him, whatever we ask for in his name, right? In his name. John 14, 13 to 14, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that, he has asked, that we have asked for him, of him. Now, so what does it mean? What, what does that mean to ask in the name of Christ? What does that mean to ask according to his will? Well, to, to ask in the name of Christ means really there's kind of two aspects of it, two dynamics of that, what that means. One is it means that we come with, uh, before God upon, based upon the authority of Christ. That we come before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I don't come before God in confidence and boldness because of what I've done. I don't come before him saying, hey, this is who I am. Look at what I've done. I'm going to come before you. No, I come in confidence in Christ. I come in the name of Christ, one who has been saved and redeemed by him. But it also means praying in a way that is consistent with his character and his will. That we would pray in such a way that reflects who he is that reflects his glory, that longs to love him more, to make his name known, to be salt and light of the world for his glory, that we would come and we would pray and we would seek his face, his will, praying the authority of Christ and his blood, reflecting his character in our prayers. Now, if you flip over to James 4 for just a moment, James 4 verses 1 through 4, an important passage when we think about this whole idea of, of prayer and why we pray scripture as a whole what are the motives of our prayer there, there's conflict going on in this passage and James is confronting it and saying why are you fighting among yourselves why are you why is there conflict among you James asks this question in James 4 starting in verse 1 he says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now listen, you do not have because you do not ask. Now if we stop right there, right? We stop right there, you can see where that might be twisted, right? Into some prosperity stuff right? The same thing. It would be, oh, well, maybe that's saying, okay, if we just have whatever we want, you know, um, you desire, you don't have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you find, oh, oh, <laughs> I desire that, and I, I just don't have it because I hadn't asked for it. Oh, I, I'm, I'm coveting what he has. I wanted it, and it, oh, yeah, 
I, my problem is I didn't ask for it. I should have asked for it, right? Well, that sounds convenient. The problem is James didn't stop there. The problem is, verse 3 says, you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You, you see what James does here? He says, listen, you, you're desiring, you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight, you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. See, the first problem, there's two problems that James reveals here. One is that there's a lack of prayer. The people are not coming to God in prayer. They're just not praying. That's the first problem. Instead, they're seeing what they want, and they're going to do whatever they, can, whatever they want to get it. They see something else that they, they covet and they're going to do whatever they want to get what they don't have. And James says, listen, one, problem number one is that you're not praying. You have not because you ask not. And the second thing is he says, listen, you've got the wrong motive when you do pray. So in, when you do pray, you're asking because, or, or you ask wrongly, why? To spend it on your own passions. So you're not praying in the name of Christ. You're not praying according to his will. No, you're asking to spend it on your own passions, worldliness, to build you up, the things that you want, and it's causing quarreling, it's causing fighting. Listen, we have to be diligent to guard ourselves from coming before the Lord in prayer, just bathed in projecting our world, our desires, our wants on what we pray for. That we would just want what we want. Prayer is an expression of our relationship and an exercise of our faith. It's when we come before God to request from God to do what we cannot do. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that is to live as His disciples. This passage is given to us as we hear the Sermon on the Mount, who we're called to be, how we're called to live as followers of Christ. And Jesus says, listen, you can't do it. <laughs> but I know that. And so that which you're called to do, I want you to ask and you will receive. Seek it, you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. So there's two aspects of this. That I want us to look at verse 7 through 8. One is I want you to see the effectiveness of biblical prayer. I want you to see the, the effectiveness of biblical prayer. What does he say in verse 7? Ask, seek, and knock. Some, some scholars, they come to this and they focus on this progression that it gets more and more intense. That asking is kind of amped up a little for seeking and then it's really taken to another level to knock, right? It's this kind of ramping up of intensity here of prayer. Some people would look at this and say, well, he's actually talking about three types of prayer. He's kind of three categories, so to speak. So in one area, you're asking for what you don't have. In the other area, you're kind of seeking for things you're, you're looking for, things that you're hoping to find. And then in another category of prayer is that you're knocking so that an opportunity might be opened up unto you. Three different categories. Now, I don't know that either of these are necessarily wrong or I, don't, I wouldn't say that either of these are necessarily right. We don't know. 
But I wouldn't say that either of them are the main point of this passage. The, the main point, the central point that Jesus is making is that God answers our prayers. God answers our prayers. And so as his people, we come to him and we trust him that he answers prayers. So much to Garth Brooks' chagrin, some of God's greatest gifts are not unanswered prayers, right? God answers prayers. He may not give you the yes every time. He may give you the wait. He may give you the instead, let me give you this instead, right? But God is not up there going, I'm just not going to answer you. He doesn't put us on hold. He doesn't fail to hear, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't answer, I didn't hear you, right? That's not our God. Our God answers prayers. When we look at this, what do we read? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. As God's children, we have the full assurance that prayer is not an exercise in futility. It is not a waste of time. It is not some vain religious act. No, when we engage in prayer, we are God's children coming before the living God that we have the opportunity to call our Father. And we come before Him, and He has adopted us as His own, and He cares for us. He is intimately involved in our lives. He provides for our needs. That's why we, we come with confidence. The writer of Hebrews talks about in 4 verse 16. We come with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why? Because we have the assurance that he will indeed do that. We have the, the confidence to come before, because of what Christ has done. So Hebrews is driving that, for, that point home throughout the book. It's because what Christ has done, who he is as our great high priest, that we come in confidence before him so we can pray in the name of Jesus. But we also have the confidence that as his children coming in his name, he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. Listen, the effectiveness of our prayer is not in the fact that we pray, but it is in the truth and the reality of the one that we pray to. That's the power of prayer. Prayer itself is not powerful. It's the God to which we pray to. I mean, this is easily illustrated, right? I can pray all I want to to that speaker all day long. And it can be the most sincere, the most beautiful, the most just incredible prayer you've ever heard. And guess what? Nothing's going to happen. That speaker is going to sit there black and triangular all day long. And will do nothing for me. Because the power is not in my prayer. The power is in who I pray to. But when I come and I pray as a child of God to my heavenly Father who reigns and rules, who is sovereign over all things, who is absolutely good and wise and able, then that prayer is effective. Not because of me, but because of him. Scripture doesn't lead us to think that our prayers are effective because of our words, but they lead us, it leads us to see that our prayer is effective because of the one we pray to. Listen, we think about the effectiveness of prayer. There's two things we see in this passage. Two aspects I want you to see. One, one, there's persistence. Persistence in prayer. You think of effectiveness of biblical prayer, there's persistence. In the Greek here where it says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find, knock, 
and will be open to you is the present tense. And the reason that's significant for us to point out is what that means is it's translated. A lot of your, your interpretation, your translation may have a footnote that says down there, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It is the idea of this ongoing that we are continuing, continuing, continuing to persist in prayer. That we're coming before God and we're keeping on coming before him. That's why we have Pastor Matt read The Persistent Widow. That she comes before him time and time again. And finally, the judge who is described as unrighteous is like, okay, I'm going to give it to you. You're persistent, right? It's this idea that we are to come persisting in prayer. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. We are to persist in prayer. That's why, listen, you get a lot, if you're a member of Grace, you get every Wednesday, you get a prayer sheet, right? And that prayer sheet has some things that have been on there literally for years that we're praying for. And we're going to persist in prayer because we trust God's timing, God's wisdom, God's goodness in that situation. And we're going to persist in prayer. And there's times where we come and we just celebrate and we rejoice in the Lord because somebody's name has been taken off that's been on there for years. We rejoice in the goodness of our God. Sometimes we pray and the next week it's taken off. It's in God's timing, but we are going to persist in prayer. So as God's people, as God's children this morning, one of the things that we need to hear is persist in prayer. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't let up. Keep praying. Keep praying. Persist in prayer. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking, Jesus says. The second thing that we see about biblical prayer here Effective biblical prayer is, is dependence. So the first thing is persistence, and now second, we see dependence. We've already talked about the fact that the Sermon on the Mount leads us and reminds us we have to be utterly dependent upon God. And here, we're called to come and to pray and to seek God's help. You understand, in prayer, what we're doing is we're petitioning God for something we need but cannot provide. Something that we cannot find. Something we cannot access on our own volition. We are needy, helpless, dependent on Him. We are those who are poor in spirit, wholly dependent upon our Heavenly Father. The sermon makes it clear that we are dependent on Him. We are helpless on our own. We are dependent on His grace. And so I wonder how much needless worry and anxiety and stress and pressure we put upon ourselves every week because we don't come before the Lord in prayer. Because we don't come and we don't seek Him. We don't ask of Him. We don't knock. We are to be those who depend on prayer, or depend on Christ. Our flesh is weak. He is strong. And we have an assurance from Him. What is the assurance? Everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. I appreciate the words of John Calvin when he said this, talking about this verse. He said, nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we will be heard. Nothing, nothing's going to excite us more to pray than the full conviction that when we pray, we will be heard by our heavenly father we pray with confidence we pray in assurance 
And it's not based on the depth of our faith. It's not based on how articulate we are. We can fumble along through our prayers, but we come and we persist in those prayers, wholly depending on God coming in the name of Christ. Then we have confidence that He hears and answers our prayers. Now, the first thing is the effectiveness of, of effectiveness of biblical prayer. The foundation of that is what we see in verses nine through eleven. In verses nine through eleven, we see the goodness and the love of God. The goodness and the love of God. What does he say in verse 9? Or which of one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, how, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The point he's making is that our God is good. Our God is good. And if we come asking him for bread, he's not going to give us a stone. He says, listen, you wouldn't do that. I mean, you may have on Friday, right? April the 1st. But other than Friday, you wouldn't do that. Right? You would, if your child comes and says, Dad, I need some bread, you give him bread. He's using an argument from a lesser to a greater. It's the same thing he did with a persistent widow. Lesser to the greater. He's saying, listen, if, if that judge who was unrighteous saw her persistence and honored her request, how much more will your father do so? Execute justice and faithfulness. And here he does the same thing. It's the same argument from lesser to greater. If you as a parent know how to provide good things to your children, then how much more so will your holy, heavenly, good all-wise Father do the same for you. How much more? Now, just as a side note, what is, just notice what Jesus says in verse 11, if you then who are evil, right? This is, we don't want to chase the rabbit too far here, but just to point out, if you then who are evil, Jesus is not identifying himself necessarily with us, saying, hey, if we who are evil, he says, listen, if you who are evil, he's simultaneously declaring the depravity of man that men are sinful and that he is without sin that God is holy he's without sin right he came to become like us in every way yet was without sin again coming back to Hebrews chapter 2 chapter 4 he's teaching us that listen even in the midst of your sinfulness even in the midst of your depravity if you know how to give good gifts God more so does. I mean, that's, that's parents. Isn't that one of the joys of Christmas? Isn't it great to provide a gift for your child that you know is going to be good for them? It's going to bring them joy? Like some gifts that, that we get our kids are ones that they open up and they're excited about. They're, they're just, oh, wow, I can't believe, oh, and they just, they're bouncing off the walls. Like we were watching old videos and we see that and that's fun. Some gifts are ones that they open up and go, <laughs> cool, a coat, <laughs> you know? But why did I give that? Why did we actually, on, in that instance, usually Steph gave it and I get the credit. Why? Because we know it's about to be cold and they don't have a coat that fits them. And they need it. And we're showing goodness to them. Our God is good. 
Our God is good. This is the foundation for all that he says. What he says in verse 7 through 8 is the foundation that he is a good and loving father. Listen, we should be encouraged by this passage passage to be persistent in prayer because our Heavenly Father is good and loving. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, God is good and he does good things. He is good and he does good. He's the giver of good things. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8, 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. James 1, 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God gives good things. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. He gives good things. Every good and perfect gift is from Him. All that you experience, all the goodness that you experience is from Him. It's through Christ. He graciously gives us all that we need. He does not withhold good things from those who walk uprightly. But we can't divorce 7 through 8 from 9 through 11 Instead, we read 7 through 8 according to 9 through 11, that God is a good and gracious king, and the goodness of God determines what is given, what is found, what is opened. It's not determined by what we want. It's determined by his goodness. Listen, I would say that everybody in here, most of you in here, especially those of you who are older, young people, you may not have experienced this yet, but if you have any age on you at all, any maturity, you can look back on your life and say, God, thank you for not giving me everything I want. But thank you for giving me, in your goodness, everything I need. You see, God's goodness is to give us what is truly good. We can trust him when we come and we ask of him when we seek of him when we knock we stand before him seeking his face we can trust him to give us what is truly good in writing on on this passage Charles Spurgeon said this he said our heavenly father will correct our prayer and give us not what we ignorantly ask but what we really need our heavenly father knows how to give far better than we know how to ask That's comforting. That's comforting. That our Heavenly Father knows how to give. You know what this means? This this means that we can trust God. That when we come and we ask for what we need in accordance to His will and His name, He will give unto us what is truly good. So if we come and we ask for bread, He provides our bread. You know what it also means? It means that we can trust that if we come before God and we are ignorantly asking for a serpent, he's not going to give it to us. He's going to give us bread instead that we need. See, there are times where what I think is best and good for me really isn't. The things I think that I need, the things that I think would benefit me, 
God knows that's not correct. And because he is good, and he gives good gifts to his children, then I can come before him in confidence. I can come before him in confidence and peace and rest, knowing that he will give me what I need. That doesn't mean that it will always be easy. It doesn't mean that it will always be fun. It doesn't mean that it will always line up with what the world says it should look like. There are times where it may be downright difficult, right? You guys in here, again, that are older have probably learned this. it could be dangerous to pray for patience, right? God doesn't just typically go, okay, there you go, you got patience, right? Most of you are chuckling because you know the reality that the way God molds and shapes patience in your life is to send you situations and individuals that demand patience, right? There are times where it's difficult. God strengthens our faith by walking us through the storm. God teaches us his goodness and sufficiency and strength in moments where we couldn't do it without it. It may be difficult. It may be trying. But God gives what is good to us. Listen, as we close Believers, I want you to know the good news that we have today. The good news that we come before God in prayer. That we're invited to come to God in prayer, to present our request to Him, to depend on Him, to persist in prayer, knowing that He is good. That He gives us what we need. He provides the strength and the grace to sustain us, to live and to be what and who he's called us to be. And so when you shake your head and you look at these passages and you go, God, I can't do that. God, I have outbursts of anger. God, I don't know what to do. God, I'm weak. God, I need healing. Whatever it is, you come before a good, good father who's a gracious king who loves you and provides for you. And the good news for those of you who are unbelievers is this, is that the reality, and this isn't necessarily good news, but the reality is right now you have no access to come before God and call him Father. You have no opportunity, no privilege to do that. But the good news is when you're confronted with that and you realize that and you come before him and say, I, I can't do anything on my own. I'm unworthy. I am sinful. I'm a wreck. And I am deserving of hell and punishment. But I turn God, I turn from that. I look to you in faith, Jesus. I'm going to repent and I'm going to trust in Christ. When you look to Christ, he adopts you as his own. And you have the privilege to come before him and say, my father, our father in heaven. And this father is one who doesn't just save you and leave you. He is one who saves you and walks with you through the ups and downs of life. Who says, come, pray, come, ask, seek, and knock. He is good. He is good. Let's pray. Father, we come.